Welcome to the Imago Day Eastside Podcast. Amen, amen. Thank you, thank you, worship team. These are good reminders. I love these songs about uh, about heaven and earth and Jesus reigning over it all and Jesus being king over heaven and earth. I know sometimes when we sing those songs, it can be easy to wonder, oh, the earth part. Yeah, I get the earth part. <laughs> uh, we want Jesus to reign here on earth. What does it mean for him to reign in heaven over all things in the heavenlies? Uh, and that's a big part of our study here in Ephesians uh, that we've been going through. Uh, if you are a... Um, uh, colored pencil kind of person in your Bibles. And there's some Bible study methods where if you use certain colors to highlight repeated words, it helps you pick out the main idea or the main theme that the author is saying. But if you're, if you're into that, you've been noticing these repeated phrases about heaven and the heavenly realms and spiritual authorities and powers. And what is that all about? Uh, what is our relationship to those things and how does Jesus want to reign over it all? So as I was thinking about that, it also comes up in our next chapter this morning, chapter 3. And I was talking, what is, what is that? What, where is that? What are the heavenly realms? Why does Paul keep bringing this up? And so as I was thinking, if you are familiar with C.S. Lewis, you know, he wrote the Narnia series and lots of other things. He pondered or wondered if the heavenly if the heavenly realms or the heavenly bodies, meaning the stars and everything we see in the cosmos, are actually heavenly beings, meaning angels and demons. And I don't, I don't know. I think that's kind of an interesting thought, an interesting uh, thing to wonder. Uh, much less theologically uh, inclined is uh, the movie, if you've seen the movie Stardust, uh, the movie opens with the narrator asking, are we human because we look at the stars, or do we gaze at the stars because we're human? Irrelevant, really. The main question is, do the stars gaze back? So as I'm thinking about these heavenly realms and the stars, you know, do we look at the stars because we're human or do they gaze back? Uh, one commentator I was reading while preparing for Ephesians suggested that the framework of a play or a drama is helpful in looking at the book of Ephesians because time and time again, Paul sets up these heavenly realms as the audience. And Paul puts the church on stage as the actors, acting out God's master plan, acting out the gospel, which got me thinking about plays and theater. Uh, my, my dad came a couple years ago, and we came to watch a play here in town, and we're waiting for the play to start, and my dad leans over and goes, why, why do we like this? Why, why do we do this? Why do we like adults making, make, you know, pretending and make-believe uh, these stories? And, and why do we sit through this? And uh, as we're kind of chatting, like, why are we here? Um, we started brainstorming. Why do we like plays? Why do we like watching stories? And I think in part because we hope that by watching a story in its entirety, we'll see how it was meaningful and we'll see that story is meaningful, maybe my story can be meaningful too. Maybe if I watch their struggle and they show me how their struggle is worth it, maybe it'll show me that my struggle is worth it too. And I think that's perfect because that's exactly what Ephesians gets at. Ephesians says, yes, your struggle is worth it. Yes, your struggle is meaningful uh, because you play a greater part in God's plan to bring the whole world under Jesus, Jesus' rule. And, oh, by the way, we're in chapter 3. We're going to see the stars are gazing back. We are being watched. And we're going to kind of get into what that means. 
So in chapter 1 and 2 with uh, Quincy and Kyle, we saw that God does choose his people and he, he blesses them with everything, brings them into his family. He gives them people and power uh, and his spirit. And he does all of that, we saw in chapter 2, because of his grace. Not because of anything we're good at, but simply because of the grace of God. And God works, basically moves heaven and earth to bring all different types of people into his family. So chapter 2 is all about how he breaks down barriers between people as he brings them into the church and he reconciles them with the Father. He reconciles them with each other. And it's this huge miraculous move that God does among people uh, to unify them so that as they come together and they come closer to himself, they can be a place where his spirit dwells. How amazing is that, that God chooses to dwell among people, to build them up in such a way that they become the temple, that we together become the temple where God dwells. And so as we step into the next act, if you will, uh, of act three in chapter three, uh, we're going to be seeing that God chooses the weak to advance his kingdom as he unifies the church. And he puts our relationship with him and our relationship with each other on display for the heavenly realms so that they'll know his wisdom and so that we will know his love. So I want to dive right in here to chapter 3, but before we do so, I want to pause and pray and invite the Spirit uh, to speak to us. Uh, Father, we we humble ourselves before you, and we we desire to hear from your word, uh, hear from your son what he has done for us in bringing us to you and bringing us to each other. Uh, And Spirit, we'd ask you to give us insight into what our role is, uh, what you've asked each of us to do, how we are each the building blocks, building up your temple to be where you can uh, be with us. Uh, Spirit, will you give us insight to uh, the things that hinder our unity with each other, things that hinder our relationship with you. Uh, Spirit, we ask that you would uh, be louder than the enemy and that uh, whatever voices have told us that we can't do that or we're not good enough, Um, where I'm not Christian enough, or I'm not this enough or that enough, that your voice would be louder, and that your voice uh, would remind us of your love, and say, yes, you are a part of my people, and I have a good place for you here. Uh, Spirit, would you reveal to us each of our place in your kingdom? Uh, Would you compel us to obey, Uh, and would you uh, feel our praise as together uh, we unify and we say, yes, you are totally worth it. Please come and dwell here with us. Uh, Father, we we desire to hear from you, and from your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's dive into chapter three. It says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, uh, pause, dash, (laughs) surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. And though I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this ministry, a mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. 
His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, uh, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Do you ever uh, read a passage in church and you're like, well, we could just read that three more times and call it good. Like, that is good stuff. That is good stuff. Well, if you need all of that summarized, if you're a nutshell kind of person, like, boil it down for me. I, th- I think as we look through this passage, we see some, some clear things come to the surface. We see God chooses the weak to advance his kingdom as he unifies the church. We're going to see that play out in the pretty much the first half of the chapter. And he puts our relationship with him and with each other on display for the heavenly realms so that they'll know his wisdom and that so we'll know his love. So let's dive right in. Uh, the first verse, uh, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Uh, quick clarifier, if you're, um, <laughs> if you're unfamiliar, you're just picking up the story with us here in Ephesians. Uh, The Bible describes kind of two different types of people, Uh, Jews who were uh, the people of Israel who God chose and was working through to tell the whole world about him, and then they referred to everybody else as Gentiles. So likely the rest of us are all Gentiles. So we're very grateful uh, that God sent Paul to include the Gentiles, us, anybody else who's not Jewish in his family. But Paul immediately gets interrupted. Your Bible may have this big dash, like pause, (laughs) right in your Bible, where he says, for the sake of you Gentiles, pause. Uh, just, Just want to clarify, if you need a reminder, what is my message? Why was I sent to the Gentiles? What message am I taking to the Gentiles? So he interrupts himself. He'll get back to this point later. But the, the point that Paul is a prisoner is important to him. And it's something he wants the Ephesians to hang on to and to remember. And something he's not embarrassed by. And something he doesn't see as invalidating his message. Uh, I don't know if you've been a person to get letters from jail. Um, I have. Uh, and lots in, in my, I have a cousin who's been in and out of jail, and he would send me lots of letters. And often it would be easy to wonder, um, yeah, did you do something wrong here? Uh, and so I think the Ephesians could be in the same boat of like, Paul... Did you do something wrong here? Is the message you're preaching really accurate? Because if you're talking to me about all this power God has, why didn't he use it to keep you out of jail? <laughs> but that's not incongruent with Paul's message. He's, he's kind of putting a pin in it here, and he'll come back to it in a few minutes when he finishes his little rabbit trail. But 
He's saying being a prisoner is right on point with what God would do and how God and his wisdom works. He picked somebody in jail, so with severe limitations, to broadcast his whole message to the entire world. You know, I would have put, picked maybe an able-bodied person who's not in jail, who has a megaphone and could travel very easily. But God said, no, that's not how my wisdom works. I pick the least likely option. And I use that least likely option to showcase my wisdom to the entire world. So Paul says, don't get confused. Me being a prisoner is part of the plan. That's not a derailment. That's not plan B. My limitations, my weakness are exactly through what the Lord works, through what his wisdom uses. So then he, he puts a pin in that. We'll come back to that in a minute. But he says, just want to clarify, you know what message I'm talking about. He says, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. This is, uh, sorry, uh, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is, it's not often the Bible says, this is the answer to the test. This is the mystery, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. So if you've been paying attention along the way, you should be thinking, wait, didn't we already know that? Like, didn't we already know Gentiles would be included in God's people and they'd become one people? Yes, yes, we already knew that. Paul is taking that a step further to say the mystery isn't just that Gentiles could be added on. The mystery is that we now have full status as brothers and sisters. There's no uh, distinction between Jew or Gentile. There's no separate courts in the temple anymore. There's no need for physical distinctions like circumcision that we talked about last week. They're totally included. They're on equal footing as anyone uh, who is Jewish. And so we have full status as full brothers and sisters, and we get all the rights that come along with being part of Messiah's people. And so Paul is assuring them, you are totally in. You're not some second class, you know, second rate citizen. You're not some half sibling. You are full brothers and sisters together with God's people. And so now he gets back. He's like, I just want to make sure you know that. Are we clear? Are we on the same page? Okay, now I'm going to get back to me being a prisoner uh, for Jesus. In verse 7, he says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So God is making this new thing. He's making a new people. He's not, he's not adding on. He's made a whole new building. He's made a whole new people. And he loves them. And he's using the least likely means to do it. So we see this, this theme throughout scripture frequently. I mean, we see this with Jesus. I love, I love the song, I'll hail King Jesus, because it talks about how uh, the enemy thought they had won. And God says, oh, you think death is the end. No, let me flip that on its head. That's exactly the means by which I'll give my children life. 
is through his death because it's the least likely option through which his wisdom is revealed. And so same thing with Paul. He was, uh, Paul was a genocide leader. He was mass murdering people of a specific faith. And God says, wow, that's somebody with a long rap sheet, with a long history, with a lot of reasons not to pick them. Yeah, that's my guy for the job. That's who I pick uh, to be the poster child for my new kingdom of who God brings in to his family. And then later when Paul is in prison, same thing. He picks a guy with severe limitations, with uh, severe constraints. And he says, that's how I'm going to get my message out to the whole world. You know, God didn't pick Paul just to share with his, you know, whoever his little guards were. He said, no, I'm going to use that. I'm going to blow the roof off and because that's how my wisdom works. I'm going to pick the least likely option. And that is what he's doing with the church. You know, the church is a bad bet. That is not a good idea to bring a bunch of people together who have lots of history, lots of reason, not to get along, not to like each other, much less love each other. And God says, yeah, I'm going to bring them all together, and they're going to love me. They're going to love each other, and that's how the world is going to know, whoa, God is wise. He is in control. And so he says that is what God puts on display for the whole universe, both for heaven and for earth. And part of that is by proclaiming his wisdom to angels and demons. And if you're getting a little squirmish <laughs> talking about angels and demons and wondering, like, what should I have to do with that? Is this an interactive play? Paul says, no, they are the audience, and we should be motivated by their gaze. But in this, in this passage, Paul doesn't say, you know, you should actively preach to angels and demons. He just says, be aware that they're watching. And we should be motivated to show the universe Jesus is going to win, and he's going to win through me, the least likely option to do so. And I want the world to see that he can do it. And so it, it, Paul encourages them, buckle down, focus on your role. Focus on your role, what he's given you to do, unity with each other and communication with God. And so that's what he says. The next thing he says in verse 12, he says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So he's, he pans out to show them the big picture saying, I hope you realize just how important it is, the play that you're in, that God has involved you in his master plan. Look at who's in the audience. And don't worry about that. Focus in on your role. Your role is unity with your brothers and sisters and communication with God. So come to me boldly and freely. Don't worry that there are massive powers and authorities in the audience watching because he says, come to me boldly and freely. When we know the enemy is working against us, I think it motivates us to focus on our part. So he zooms back into their relationship with each other and their relationship with God. I think of God as a, as a good parent here who goes to his a child's junior high theater performance. Because nobody wants to go to that. And he goes and he says, don't worry about your lines. Focus right here. Find me in the audience and focus right here. Tell me your lines. Focus on telling them to me. Because he loves us. And so Paul says, focus on our role. I think Paul is also echoing Jesus' words from Luke here in Luke 10. Uh, this is when Jesus has sent his disciples out on a practice run uh, for ministry. And he sends them out. And they come back shocked. Like, Did you know that angels and demons submit to you in your name? And like, what? You can heal people, Jesus? 
And he says, yes. And so in Luke 18, he says, yes, of course you have power and authority over angels and demons. That's why you're the ones on the stage, and they're not. You know, they're in the audience. You're the ones on the stage. But, but count yourselves blessed that your name is written in the book of life. So he says, yes, isn't that awesome? And focus on your role. Focus on talking with me, on your relationship with me, and on your relationship with each other, and I'll take care of how the rest looks to the universe. So how exciting. Jesus says, focus on me. Paul says, focus on God. And so he invites all people to talk to him. Talk to him boldly. Talk to him freely. Come, let it all spill out. Tell me. I have a friend who says, whenever she calls me, she says, okay, hi. Tell me all the life things, <laughs> like all of it. And that's what God says. Come, tell me all the life things. Tell me all the things that are worrying you, that are bothering you, that you're excited about, that you're wondering about, that you're confused about, that weigh on you. Come boldly and freely. And so then Paul doesn't just tell the Ephesians, this is a good idea, something you should do. Moving on. He says, no, this is important. Let me pause and stop and show you how to do it. So then Paul pauses and he breaks out in prayer for them. He asks God boldly and freely for big things for them. In verse 14, he says, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell with your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power and work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and ever. Amen. And so what's the biggest thing Paul can think to ask for? When he comes boldly and freely to God, the number one thing on top of his mind is he asks that they know God's love. That they know how much the Father loves them. The Father loves them so much. And I think in part, Paul prays for this because he knows when they are confident and secure in God's love, it will make them confident when things get messy, when church gets messy. When he says, when the unity thing gets difficult, come back to me and let's talk about it. Come back to me boldly and freely and let's talk. Because he knows this mystery of the church is not natural to how relationships usually go in the world. It's only, it's only organic to the spirit in the church. And so it begs the question, can God really overcome all of our individual weaknesses and limitations, much less our collective differences and unify us in the church? Because when church gets messy, it can be easy to wonder, wait a minute, does God love me? Is this part of his master plan? And Paul says, yes, you can bank on it. Know that the Father loves you. I think uh, when the Ephesians read this passage, what, what, how might they have reacted? How might they have responded? And I think it'd be easy for them to say, give me a break. How can any of this possibly work? You're in jail. God, God doesn't want his people to get along. God's people don't want to get along. How could this possibly work out? I think that would be a fair response for the Ephesians uh, if you remember why Paul is in jail. Uh, we have the full story in Acts 21. 
And in Acts 21, uh, Paul is in jail because he, a Jewish mob in Jerusalem thought that he brought Trophimus. I'd love to see that name on a family dedication morning. Uh, he brought Trophimus uh, to, into the temple. And Trophimus is a Greek believer from the Ephesian church. So Paul took one of the Ephesian church members, Trophimus, with him to Jerusalem. And a bunch of Jewish people thought he brought him into the temple. And that was a big no-no. No outsiders, no foreigners in our temple because this is just for us and God. But that's not the mystery. And so people thought he brought Trophimus into the temple. And they could not stand the thought of that. And so uh, they broke out in a riot. And a mob happened. And guards ended up hauling Paul away to jail. And poor Trophimus is left there standing going, what in the world just happened? And that had to be hurtful and discouraging when the Ephesians found out that their mentor in the faith and one of their own were so violently degraded and rejected and maligned in such a racially charged way. They had to pause and wonder, what? Does God love us? Is he working out his master plan in the church? Can the church really be a place where Jews and Gentiles are so secure in his love that they get along so well the rest of the world goes, wow, God is wise? Because that doesn't feel like what just happened here with Trophimus. How could God possibly use that to teach angels and demons? Does he really love us that much? But Paul doesn't have that attitude at all. In verse 13, he says, don't be discouraged. This is all part of the plan. We're totally on track. This has totally been the plan. Don't be discouraged. He says, yes, this is God's plan. And he is going to advance his kingdom through the least likely option. A bunch of people who shouldn't get along, getting along and loving each other and loving him. And I have to wonder if perhaps Paul is also aware of the greater audience watching. Uh, He's so proud of their performance, I think. He's so proud of how they are at being the church. They're taking their cues from Jesus and faithfully acting out the gospel. And that matters. Paul can see in them the Father's epic plan being played out. And he says, good job. You are unifying the body. You are unifying people through the Spirit, and you're coming to God. You're part of his plan, and he sees them getting their lines right and their places right. And he says, good job. The stars are gazing back. Don't look at this upside down. Don't be discouraged. This is part of the plan. This is a sign that we're on the right track. He even, to the Ephesians, calls this their glory, the reason that he's in jail. And so he he says, don't get overwhelmed by zoom in, back out. Zoom back in and remember your role. Keep focusing on your role. And so he says in verse 17, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness in God. So he says, keep focusing on your relationship with each other. Keep focusing on your relationship with God because he loves you so much. And he says, don't, don't try and figure it out. This is not something you can know. If you keep asking, God, why do you love me? There, I've got all these limitations, all these weaknesses, all these flaws. He says, you can't know. There's no good reason. He loves you. He just loves you. And it's when we're rooted and secure in his love that we'll be filled or we'll feel satisfied. We'll be content with who we are and who we are in his plan. 
So verse 20, he says, ask for the moon. Be confident in the plan. Be secure in his love. Come to him boldly and freely. Ask for everything. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Uh, my mom has this saying, whenever we were, uh, when we were in school and wanting to go out for a role or a sport or whatever, and we would say, oh, well, I don't know, I'm, I, mean, I don't know that I'm good enough, or I don't know that I would make it, uh, she would have a saying that, uh, well, you're already not on the team, so you can't get any more not on the team than you already are, so ask. And that's what Paul is saying. Ask. You have the God who can do immeasurably more than you could ever imagine. Ask. Come to him boldly and freely because it can't get any worse than you already are in. So ask. And ask because you know he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And praise God. Praise God. Praise God that he chooses people with limitations. People who are weak. If you don't think you can make it, if you don't think you can do it, Perfect, you qualify. That's who God wants to use. People who are weak to advance his kingdom as he unifies the church and puts our relationship with each other and him on display for the whole universe to see so that we know his wisdom and we know his love. So I have to think when the Ephesians read this, what are things that were both true for them as they were taking Paul's letter, reading Paul's letter, and what are things that are still true for us? Um, I think uh, the, f- the fact that God does choose the weak to advance his kingdom as he unifies the church is still true for us. That's, he didn't pick us because we were great. <laughs> you know, he picked us because we were just like Paul or we were just like the Ephesians. We are weak. We have limitations. Uh, he picked us because despite our limitations, he could showcase his power. I love that. He picks us for the same reason I think... Uh, uh, moms of first graders hang artwork on the fridge. Not because it's great. You don't put it up there because it's a great portrait. You put it up there because you love them. He's going to use you because he loves you. He loves us. He chooses unlikely people in unlikely situations who are otherwise unwanted or unqualified. And he says, that's my pick. That's my pick for the job. They're going to do work in my kingdom. You know, the Ephesians had Jews, Greeks, former witches and sorcerers, former pagans. They had zealots uh, like Apollos, who was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila. They had all different types of people, and they were all learning to get along in one unified church despite their differences. And Paul says, that's it. That's, that's the whole game, is to be unified with each other and unified with God. They looked like us. And Paul says, they, he can, God can unify the Ephesian church. He can unify us. And then he puts us on display. You know, the Ephesians aren't the only ones uh, getting that role. God has chosen us, east side, to put us on display for all, the whole world, for the heavenly realms, to see our relationship with him and our relationship with each other. So he says, come boldly, come freely, focus in on your role in God's kingdom, in God's work, to focus on talking with him and talking with each other. He wants the Ephesians and us to do the same, and when we focus on our part, uh, the heavenly realms watch us too. 
And Paul doesn't tell us that to get overwhelmed by who's in the audience. He says, know that you're in good hands. God has written a good script, and it's got a good place for you because he loves you. He's got a good role for you to play. And when we know that he loves us, it makes us confident to play our part. Paul says we need the Spirit's power and to be together with the Lord's people to know God's love. Uh, We need to be in deep relationship with both the Spirit and his people to experience that love. Uh, If we just say, oh, it's just me and Jesus, I don't go to church, you're not going to experience God's love because Paul says you have to be together with the Spirit and the Lord's people. Or if you say, oh, well, I just fellowship all the time, I don't read my Bible, God says that's not enough. That's not how you'll know your love. You need time with both. Time both with the Spirit and time both with his people to know and experience his love. And that's how we'll be filled the way that we're meant to be, how we'll be satisfied. So those are awesome truths that can be true for us, but they will be pretty dead and pointless if we don't put them into practice, if they don't inform our Monday mornings and our Wednesday evenings and and the daily grind of our lives. And this is where the importance of church lies, in doing church. I want to encourage you that a church is not just sitting and listening to sermons or worshiping and doing songs, but church is doing the work. Church is doing the work of talking with him, spend, carving out time in my schedule to be with him and be still before him. Church is doing the work of being together with his people, spending time with them, pouring into their lives, being served by them. It's a mutual thing. So I want to encourage you this morning as we kind of transition to our response time. We've heard great truths, and those are wonderful, but we also want them to inform our lives. So I'm gonna, we're going to switch and do things a little bit different this morning. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come up. And if the Spirit is prodding you to respond to him, I want you to do that. There are lots of ways we can do church together. If you noticed, uh, we can get there can be a lot happening up front, and that's not because there's a lot happening on stage, we want to be responding to what the Spirit is doing. So this morning, we can respond through communion in praise of what Jesus has done. He loves us, and this is how he showed it, and this is how we remember it, through communion. You can also uh, do church with us by praying. You can come up here. If you need to put the audience behind you and focus in and zoom in on your relationship with Jesus, you can come up front and talk with Jesus. If you need help getting that conversation started, you can come up and ask the prayer team, to help get that conversation started with you. You can kneel in your seats. You can kneel in the aisle. You can step out into the lobby if you need. To, if there's an aspect of working on our unity with each other. Pull a brother or sister out and say, hey, this is uh, where I'm struggling. Will you help me? And as we work together on our unity among each other and our communication with God, that's what he puts on display for the world to see. Because we want to be people who recognize the potential for the spirit to move despite our weaknesses. Um, So I want to pause and take some moments uh, in quiet to ponder. Uh, Have you sensed the spirit prodding you to be part of his kingdom work but have hesitated because of your limitations? What are your limitations? Those might be the very means through which the spirit chooses to work. I'd invite you this morning to come confess that that they have been used as excuses and that you want to press in and and do kingdom work with God. 
This morning, let's own our weaknesses and ask the Spirit to show us where he's working in spite of them because people with pain and weakness and flaws and rap sheets and history are the very people he picks to be part of his work. So if you've been believing the lie that pain or trauma or past experiences disqualify you from kingdom work, come and talk to him about it this morning because God chooses the weak and the unlikely to advance his kingdom. And he does so as he unifies the church. You know, maybe you're in the Ephesian situation and you think uh, asking church people to get along uh, is crazy. And maybe you have a lot of church hurt or past experiences with church that have been so painful and negative uh, that it's hard to get over. It's, it's hard to, um, to overcome those. And in my experience, that's actually a pretty common experience. Most Christians have had an experience where another Christian hurt them. And those leave scars. Those leave scars because those are people who should have known better, who should have been better, and should have acted like family. Now, I want to encourage you, Trophimus had the same experience. He was treated poorly, uh, unfairly, in a racially charged way by people who should have known better, who should have been better, and should have treated him like family. But Paul says that that's not where the story has to stop. Paul says that's not how the kingdom works. These painful experiences, they can be our glory. The world looks at scars and says, oh, that should be a badge of honor you carry around, um, saying you have the right to hold on to it. But that's not how God's kingdom works. In God's kingdom, scars are reminders of God's healing. So this morning, if you have deep hurt or deep pain, uh, I'd encourage you, I'd urge you to come forward and, and ask God for healing. And then it will require a sacrifice of you. I'd ask you to ask God for forgiveness and to help you forgive the church. That can be really painful. That can be really difficult. You may be thinking, my goodness, that's way too much. How could I possibly move on from this pain, let go of this pain? And if that's you, I'd encourage you to look at Jesus' scars because they brought our healing We may not have been physically present the day Jesus died, but our rebellion and our delusion of self-sufficiency echoed the mob that cried, crucify him, crucify him. And even in that moment, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And so because we have been forgiven by Jesus, he urges us to turn around and forgive those who should know better, who should be better, and should treat us like family. So if you've had a church trauma this morning that needs healing, uh, come, come and talk to him. If you need help starting that conversation, come and talk with the prayer team. Uh, because he's put our relationship with him and each other on display for the world to see his wisdom. And he doesn't want you to worry about the audience. He simply wants to hear your thoughts. Come talk to him. Is there something that has been keeping you from talking directly with him? Is there something that feels too big, too much to bother him with, too hurtful to talk about, too much to dredge up, too impossible for him to handle since it feels like he has in any ways? Paul says, come. Come talk boldly and freely with him because he loves you and he wants to hear it and he wants to bridge that gap. We need, he says we need the power of the Spirit and of being together with the Lord's people to know his love. Come, to, come be with the Lord's people. If you need his people to help you get started, come and talk with God together. 
How can we as a people press into deeper relationship with the Spirit and talking with Him and talking with each other? Sometimes His response comes through our brothers and sisters, and we need to be humble enough to receive those words of healing and of wisdom from our fellow brothers and sisters. Uh, as we conclude this morning, uh, I was looking at there's a very famous theologian, a German theologian, Karl Barth, and he has been very prolific, and he's written about lots of these things. Uh, but near the end of his life, he had an uh, interviewer ask him, if you had to sum it all up, how would you sum it up? You know, give it to me in a nutshell. And he said, oh, that's, that's very simple. I learned it on my mother's knee. Jesus loves me. This I know. Jesus, for the Bible, tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. So this morning, I'd invite you to come do church with us. I'd invite you, as we respond, to take communion, because it really is as simple as Jesus loves me, and in communion, we remember that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 says that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He died for us, and that on the third day, he was raised again, according to the scriptures. And so in communion, we rem remember with crackers and the juice, his body and blood. We remember his sacrifice, and we praise him. You know, Paul breaks out in so much praise in this chapter about what God has done. We can praise him through communion. And if you have never responded to Jesus's love through repentance and forgiveness, I'd invite you to do that this morning. You can do that just by having a simple conversation with him in your, in your seat, or if you want to do that with someone, you can come up front and do that with us. We can also respond by giving our tithes and offering. You know, communion is a way we come and we take from Jesus' body. And in tithes and offerings, we give back to Jesus' body because that's a way we express unity with each other. And finally, we can respond in musical worship and prayer. I'd encourage you as we sing these songs, we sing these truths, they be praise to God for what he has done and what he has done with us and that we do church together. Amen. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and uh, pray for us, and then we'll transition here. Father, we praise you. Jesus, we praise you for what you have done in the church. You have done a crazy thing that the world would say is a bad idea, but through your spirit, you have chosen unlikely people in unlikely situations and unlikely circumstances, drawn them together, and made us yours because you love us. Uh, Father, we desire to reflect that love back to you this morning and to say thank you for loving us. Uh, we love you back. We please show us our role in your plan. Uh, and would you motivate us by who's in the audience uh, and just help us focus in on loving each other and loving you well. In your name we pray. Amen.